Hey everybody, this is Brett. And I'm Christian. And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast. 1967 edition. Everybody and welcome to the Guild of Films podcast. It is I, Christian, and it feels like it has been far too long since I've been here to talk to you about movies. Well, since then, I fired Brett from his own podcast. I I did a friendly coup of things, so it's just me, myself, and I. So if you hear, you know, pauses, it's me waiting for a response from me, myself, and I. So, oh wait. Oh, Brett has come back. Hello, Brett. Yeah, you know, I, I still have the links. You know, I got the new links, so I'm I'm swooping in here and, and taking over. Hello, foiled, hello. Foiled again. It has felt, though, like we've been gone a while. I don't know. It's just like world, the world is busy for us both. Yes, you know? especially you, Mr. Ramos. Yes, indeed. I'm a teacher now, so I don't get the time to watch movies. But we're here, and there's Brett. Hello. And actually, Brett and I have gotten to see each other, so that's nice. Um, but yeah, so we're back to do another episode. And it's a pretty good year, too, of 1967. Am I right? Yes, you are correct. Yes. Yeah, so, and here to help us talk about 1967, back once more, is our good friend KB. Hello. Hello, hello. How's it going, guys? Good. Thank you for joining us, because I know that you said beforehand this is like one of your favorite years. So It, it is, yeah. minus one movie, but I think we already know which one that is. We won't, uh, we won't talk about it when we don't have to. You both know my feelings already, because you got to go through my Snapchat story of it. Yeah. yeah, I was too disgusted to make any kind of social media post about that thing. Yeah. I, I have to say, and we'll get to it. We'll discuss it, but I don't think I don't think our thoughts on that movie are going to be all that controversial. But we shall see. Um, but yeah, absolutely. This is such an exciting year. Um, I've been reading the book. I don't have the cover on right now, but the pictures at a revolution from Mark Harris. I've got like forty pages left, so that's all about this year. If you haven't listened to it, I can already, even though I've finished it, can heartily recommend it. I believe you've both read it, right? Yeah. I have not, but I've read. Oh, you're not. Okay. No, but I've read five came back also written by him. Perfect. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah. If we have a lot of, of tidbits to add in throughout the episode, um, some of them may have come from there. So definitely recommend it. But yes, this is a very exciting year. It was a, a big year for movies and the academies in a lot of ways. Um, one being that this was the 40th Academy Awards. So it was a big year for the Oscars. A lot of great films nominated. The big winner of the night was In the Heat of the Night. It won Best Picture, um, although Best Director did go to Mike Nichols for The Graduate. Um, his second nomination on his second movie, he was nominated the year before for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, so he was kind of on a roll. Best Actress this year went to Katherine Hepburn for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, um, always, I've been always been amazed by this. She has four Oscar wins, and yet this was only her second, despite 
the peak of her popularity being, you know, like 30s to early 50s. She comes back. This is kind of a comeback for her. Um, and we've talked about her third and fourth as well, but this was actually her 10th nomination. So a lot in between. Uh, best actor went to Rod Steiger for In the Heat of the Night, his third nomination, but it was his only win. Supporting actress went to Estelle Parsons for Bonnie and Clyde. Her first nomination, she was the newcomer of the acting winners that year. And best supporting actor was George Kennedy for Cool Hand Luke. That was his only nomination win. Uh, best adapted screenplay went to Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and original screenplay went to In the Heat of the Night. Wait a minute, films. wait a minute, wait a minute. Strike that and reverse those categories, actually. Oh, sorry, sorry. Listen, I'm wrong. Listen, I'm wrong. Okay, adapted went to In the Heat of the Night. You're right. Original went to Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Um. Both films, both Best Picture nominees that took on race in different ways, I would say. We'll get into all that. Um, and yeah, In the Heat of the Night was definitely the big winner. It got the most wins with five, although Bonnie and Clyde and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner both had the most nominations with 10. I was actually reading that it was kind of a big deal that Bonnie and Clyde only won two awards that night, which was kind of interesting. Um, it was hosted by Bob Hope. The ceremony was actually supposed to take place two days sooner, but in between um, the assassination of the the funeral for Martin Luther King was happening. So the assassination ended up delaying it by a couple days. The Academy President Gregory Peck kind of helped make sure that was something that would happen. But despite that, it was a celebration. They honored four decades of the Oscars. They had video segments from... Catherine Hepburn, Olivia de Havilland, Grace Kelly, and Anne Bancroft to talk about each decade. Um, and they specifically pointed out it happened one night, Gone with the Wind, From Here to Eternity, and Ben-Hur because they were the most awarded films of those decades, which was kind of interesting. Often in previous episodes, we've talked about um, the Academy having black and white and color categories for cinematography, art direction, and costume design. This was the first year that they went away with that. They just made them their own categories. And it was also the first time that three different films were nominated for all the big five awards. Um, this is something we've talked about before. Picture, director, lead acting, and a screenplay nom. Um, Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner were all given those opportunities. It was also the only year that two films received nominations in all four categories that happened with Bonnie and Clyde and guess who's coming to dinner. And the graduate became the seventh film to win only best director. It would actually not happen again until just last year when Jane Campion did it for the power of the dog. Edith head, obviously a big name in the industry. This was the first time since the best costume design category was introduced in 1948 that she was not nominated. So she would obviously be nominated again afterwards, but that was an incredible run for her. And uh, the end of one streak began the start of another. John Williams received his first nomination for the score of the Valley of the Dolls. And he's now received, what, 50, 50 plus nominations at this point. So um, pretty incredible there. Amazing. Edith Evans was the last acting nominee to be born in the 1880s. Um, I was reading, there was a lot about... Um, sorry, Dame Edith Evans. Um, but it was a big deal because Faye Dunaway was kind of this new star who was also nominated for Best Actress. So a lot of people kind of thought that it might come down to those two and it didn't end up going that way. Um, 
Alfred Hitchcock won his only, I shouldn't say won, he was awarded his only Oscar at this ceremony, which was the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award. And Gregory Peck, who was the Academy president, was awarded the Humanitarian Award at this ceremony. And this was the last Oscars broadcast to be um, broadcasted by network radio. And so from here on out, it was you know, primarily just TV going forward as it is today. So yeah, a lot of things going on here. Right. What's that? I said a lot of fun facts there. Yes, of course, most interesting, I think, of all is the actual movies that were nominated. So we are going to dive right in and talk about those. Any further thoughts on this ceremony before we start talking about those movies? <clears throat> One of these things is not like the other. For real. It is. It is. But first, we start with one of the good ones. Yeah, fortunately, it's not the first one. <laughs> not the first one, um, which I had the pleasure to introduce. And this first one is one that it was a big deal at the time. And it's one that certainly remains a big deal even today. It is Bonnie and Clyde, directed by Arthur Penn. Bonnie and Clyde, if you know the history of Bonnie and Clyde, you should have an idea about the general basis of what this film is about, even if it's not always historically completely historically accurate. Um, Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker meet in Texas when Clyde tries to steal uh, Bonnie's mother's car. And Bonnie, who is, you know, your common young woman growing up in a do-nothing Texas town, is kind of impressed by Clyde, and he provides an escape from kind of her boring Texas life. And so, of course, they become lovers, and they set out on a crime spree together. And as things go along... They go from petty crime, petty theft, moving up to eventually robbing banks. And as that happens, so often that leads to many instances of violence. Um, a lot of killings, both of uh, police officers, but also just people who get involved, like you know, bank tellers and whatnot, who try to prevent these crimes. Along the way, they are joined by C.W. Moss, who kind of becomes one of their right-hand men. Um, he is played by Michael J. Pollard, who was nominated for his role. Um, Clyde Barrow, played by Warren Beatty. Bonnie Parker, Faye Dunaway. That's obviously iconic at this point. They were both nominated. As were Gene Hackman, who plays Clyde's brother, Buck, and Estelle Parsons, who plays his wife, Blanche. And so this group of five, they kind of come together. They end up getting chased by police. Eventually, all five of them get drawn in by their crimes and they can't really escape that and so a lot of the film is them going on their bank robbing sprees but also trying to figure out how to survive and how to make it um film was obviously controversial for a lot of reasons one being that some saw it as a glamorization of these two they are kind of presented in some ways as folk heroes who are sticking up for the farmers who suffered during the great depression but most of all i think is the violence um for 1967 especially, it is a very violent movie, especially the final scene of the movie. And when I was getting ready to watch this, which would have been for the second time, my concern would be that, did I only love this the first time because it was influential? And I think it's great to say that a film is influential and to enjoy it for that, but it's not a great reason to love a movie to me, you know, because that's something that's, it can get a little bit objective. I was watching to see, do I actually love this movie or do I love that it was influential? And I'm happy to say that I love this movie. In fact, I loved it more this time than I did previously. 
I think the way that it's shot for an American studio film and the way it looks is also so kind of like awe-inspiring for that time. I think it looks great. I was, you know, when I first watched, I was unaware of the influences of the French new wave on this movie. And now seeing it with kind of the, the grainy effects and the rapid editing and the really kind of anti-hero like lead characters. I love all that, that that stuff that just entices me. I love complicated characters. I love that the ending comes and it happens and the movie just ends. It doesn't dissolve into some kind of like romanticized thing where it spends a lot of time after that. Um, and I, you know, if you, if you know about Bonnie and Clyde or you've seen the movie, you know how it ends and it is very shocking. It's very sudden. And even today I'm watching in that scene, it's wild because it feels like it go on, goes on for so long. And yet all of a sudden it's done abruptly. Um, so yeah, the violence is very effective, but I think the violence has meaning and it, it strikes a chord into how violence factors into everyday life of these very normal, ordinary human beings. Don't be mistaken. Clyde and Bo Bonnie and Clyde are awful bank robbers. Like they are bad at it. Um, and I like that the film doesn't try to make them anything more than that. And it's really interesting to follow them. I, I'm kind of enticed the whole way through. And it's just a, an extremely well-crafted movie that I loved. Um, and I'll get into the performances too, because I have a lot of thoughts about that. But I want to hear y'all's thoughts first. Okay, I'll go. <laughs> uh, this is my like umpteenth time seeing it. And totally agree with everything you're saying. I really, really love this. And, and watching it this time, I noticed that I really loved all of the performances. And as an ensemble, like everybody is giving it their all. Even like a almost near cameo appearance by Gene Wilder as the mortician character that they kidnap, who is like inspired by like an actual event that did happen. Like he's actually very, very good in this. Um, but I also wrote in my quick letterbox review, that this i think i did anyway the scene where they go back to bonnie's home and it's shot i think so i i'm a teacher i should know if this is a word or not interestingly i don't know that it's yeah. like you don't hear the sound of anybody coming through as you would like a normal like a, a normal tones or whatever it's more in the background because you're just for like one second seeing these people again as yes hey guess what they rob people they might even kill them, but at the same time, they have a family. Bonnie really wants to go back to her family to see them, at least before anything else gets messy. And at the same time, her family's concerned for her. And Clyde is just there being like, oh, no, yeah, we're good. We're fine. Whatever. We escaped from all the lawmen. It's like, don't just don't talk like this. So, But again, this is a great film. And Jack Warner, <laughs> the man hated this movie. And I'm like... I'm thinking to myself, he must have drank a shit ton of water to get up like twice to go pee or something, because this is not one where you like simply pause it and get up and go. All right. It's 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 very good. And uh, <clears throat> I missed their historical accuracy here. Yes, it's not like, you know, as I mean, it's a Hollywood movie, but look up how they died, because that is also very interesting. The movie does, I think, does a great job, but like how they died is it's obviously kind of sad because also bonnie had some health issues at the end of her life so no great movie yeah 
I would agree with uh, everything you guys said. For me, same situation as you, Christian. I've seen it enough times that I can't remember the count. So uh, for this time when I watched it, it was more about the relationships and how they developed. And um, the, the main one between the two main characters, it, you, at times you, you want to know, well, what's carrying them on? Because you could tell that there are different interests between them. But the thing that brings them together is this excitement of their crime spree. And of course, there's a part where everything changes between them as more characters are introduced and everything. But yeah, and we're going to talk about this over and over. For the time in which this film came out, this was unlike anything that has been shown on screen before. So if you think back to the days of various Westerns, somebody got shot, they made the horse fall down, not a speck of blood. <laughs> and now you have people getting shot in the face up close. You have, you know, left and right. There's like <laughs> before the days of squibs, but there's <laughs> there's blood all over the place. And I, I can imagine for audiences back then, I mean, this is what still two years before the wild bunch. This is like ultra violent for them. And you take the average moviegoer today and it pales in comparison to what we see. You know, I just watched Terrifier and Terrifier 2. That ain't <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> but, you, watch you know, what I told you to. What's that? Did you watch it on the site I gave you? Oh, no. I, I had it on Plex. I, I didn't oh, okay. even need to do it. I, I tried, but. It didn't show up on Apple TV, so I didn't bother. But, um, yeah, so you have to imagine that the amount of violence that was on screen was just unlike anything anything anyone has ever seen before. And with the exception of one of the Best Picture nominees, all of these movies brought something new to the screen and something revolutionary to the screen. So... Uh, that's a good title for that book because it truly was revolutionary in the way it was presented and the themes that it took on that was always kind of like behind the scenes or kept under the rug being brought to the forefront. You know, you have this hyper-masculinity and the stark opposite of it at the same time in the same person. So, you know, things like that, people aren't used to seeing on the big screen. So there's so many reasons why this is truly an iconic movie and uh, definitely a good rewatch. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's the, the blood in particular that, that gets me and stands out to me because like for American movies especially, it's so revolutionary by miles. And you think about like how it was written based on like French films and based on international films and, and the writers wanting to bring that sense into mainstream American cinema. But even then, like I'm thinking, and I haven't, there's so much I haven't seen, but I'm trying to think of movies before then, even in the international realm that probably had just as much violence, but weren't as visible with like the actual bloodshed and, yeah. and the realistic nature of it. And so I can imagine even in that sense, it was revolutionary, which is pretty remarkable uh, because, you know, international cinema is always ahead of the U.S. 
in nearly everything, to be quite plus, honest. Plus, I was reading when I was watching this, I, I love going through the IMD, IMDb fun facts where it came out just at the right time where Vietnam was getting to be such a disillusionment with this one generation that said, no, 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 let's go over and fight, you know, preserve our freedom, communism bad. And then the younger generation who was then the core audience of this film that said, no, let's counter all of those thoughts. Let's explore who we are and let's just be free and loving. Essentially what Bonnie and Clyde did, except they did it in the more violent way, which, hey, to them, more power to you. Let's do that too. Burn our draft cards. Yeah, and you have to think uh, Evening News was leading off with footage from Vietnam by that point, and you know, it was almost like it was telling for the time. And another way it's iconic is you look at the movies that followed in the next five years. I mentioned Wild Bunch. A couple of years after that, you have Sonny on the Bridge and Godfather. So mm-hmm. all these things were inspired by, I want to say, the license given in cinema from what Bonnie and Clyde uh, showed. Because it was kind of like from there, they just open up the floodgate for uh, violence and the way it's depicted in future motion pictures. Right. Yeah. And this is, I mean, we could do a, a, a whole series of podcasts on like censorship and how it factored into these movies. But this was like, we're finally arriving at a time where like movies like this, that like the Catholic, you know, Legion of Decency or whatever they were called at the time, they would still condemn these movies and it would still be like, we don't care. And audiences don't care whether you condemn it or not. They're still going to see it. And not that this movie was a big hit. In fact, as you mentioned, Christian, Jack Warner hated it. He did not put it in very many theaters. It did well in those theaters, but he wouldn't expand it because he hated it so much. Didn't have any faith in it. And, but, even, and even I read hated it during Oscar season when it was up for all of these things. And it was like, eh, right. second thought there. But the fact yeah. is that where it was in theaters people were going and especially young people were going. I think the, the movie, one of the biggest things it did is that it, it kind of moved the old guard out of the way of the movie business a little bit. Um, one of the things I was reading in, in the book was that Bosley Crowther, who was probably among the most famous critics ever at that point in time, this movie basically got him fired um, because he hated it so much and railed against it so much. And everybody started to disagree with him that you know the new york times is like you're old newsman you got to do something else so it, it's kind of and i'm not saying oh yeah yes rallying cry the movie got somebody fired but it was kind of one of those that was like okay it's finally time to change yeah. and to embrace this whole year it's about changing the guards really is right. or the attempts to hold on to the old way of movie making and didn't Absolutely. and i read too that Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael were pretty influential in getting this at least recognized and the positive review of it all. So yeah. you have those two who then became influential, you know, film commentators in their own right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Early days for them. So this one, um, it got two wins for Estelle Parsons for supporting actress. Um, and the cinematography also got a win as well. The additional noms, it had eight. Obviously, Picture, Best Director for Arthur Penn, uh, Warren Beatty for Best Actor, Faye Dunaway for Actress, 
Two supporting actor nominations for Gene Hackman and Michael J. Pollard, the original screenplay and the costume design. Um, and in the most recent AFI ranking from 2007, it is number 42 on their list. So obviously still considered by many one of the most esteemed films of all time. And the Oscars are interesting to me because, frankly, I, I don't know how controversial this opinion is. I, I think they gave the award to the worst performance in the movie. Um. I actually really like Gene Hackman in this movie. I think he's actually my favorite of the group. Maybe I'm just biased because I love Gene Hackman, but I think Faye Dunaway, Warren Beatty, um, Michael J. Pollard are also great. Christian's giving me a look, but I, I think Estelle Parsons is, <laughs> I get it's the way it's written, but she's just too much in this movie. It, it's too much. It The whole thing feels so realistic that she makes it seem a little bit less realistic to me. And see, I'm in the Estelle Parsons camp because I know her from Roseanne the most. So I have an appreciation of her from there. So she's delightful in this. I'm sure she's a great actress. I don't know much about her, but not a, not know, a fan in this movie. This is this is back to back times. If we go back to 68, because we've done 68, right? Where you thought the supporting actress winner was meh, it's fine. So to Estelle no. Parsons out there, lady. I know you're still out there. I'm sorry. To the spirit of Ruth Gordon, I'm sorry for him too. <laughs> I thought Ruth Gordon was great. That is false. That is... Did you really know? I thought she was Did great. She? I just didn't give her the award. That's the thing. Oh, there we I gave, go. I gave it to Shaney Wallace, who deserves more credit for Oliver. Hmm. I found her absolutely annoying, but I think that's the way the character was written. Right. Yeah. The, I, the I, real, she did a good job at being annoying. With most yeah. of it. She she did a good job at being annoying. She did. She did. Was it an Oscar worthy job at being annoying? Shrug. <laughs> <laughs> We're not there, but I think that's a good discussion for when we yes. talk about uh, the best supporting actors. Because I'd like oh, to yeah. hear who you would have uh, given the award to, if not her. Absolutely. Oh. I looked at the nominees. There was another person I would have actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> Me as well. I'll, I'll just give you the hint of this one. Raspberries. <laughs> yes. All right. Obviously, Bonnie and Clyde, a, a hugely important film, one that we all love. Um, any further thoughts on this one before we, we take a turn, should I say? It's on HBO Max. Yes, it is. Yes. yes, check it out there. All right, Christian, you've got it. Oh, boy. All right. Well, shit, here we go. If blood and violence didn't get you somewhere, how about talking animals and songs and Rex Harrison doing his thing? That's right, y'all. It's the acclaimed Academy Award winning feature film, Dr. Doolittle. Yep, that's right. You're like, wait a second, what? The Eddie Murphy movie? No, not the Eddie Murphy film. This is a totally different thing altogether. This is Dr. Doolittle, directed by Richard Fleischer, starring Rex Harrison. And it is basically Fox saying to the world, hey, we just came off of literally two years of The Sound of Music beating every single box office records. So you know what the American public wants right now when Vietnam is a raging and the counterculture movements are happening? Another musical 
with Rex Harrison, the star of My Fair Lady from even a few years back. And guess what he can do? He can talk to animals. Everybody's going to have a good time. Well, guess what? They were wrong. Okay. To sum up, Dr. Doolittle, he can talk to animals. He's on the hunt for a giant pink snail, which, by the way, when we see this pink snail, guess what? It's not. Well, one, it's not real, but the other, it ain't pink. <laughs> Unless I'm like losing color blindness, whatever. I don't know, but the thing wasn't pink. Um, that's the main gist of the story, I guess. I don't know. If you know any of the Dr. Doolittle stuff, you'll know that's the thing. Anyway, Fox bought, Fox literally bought their way into this nomination for Best Picture. And as last I saw, this was like the worst nominated Best Picture film ever. So, I mean, it has that going for it. Other than that, to me, it has nothing going for it. It's supposed to be like, you know, happy song and dance and all that. But clocking it two and a half hours, okay, it is the longest struggle that you could ever imagine. And again. Coming off of The Sound of Music, which is like God-tier film to this is such a letdown. <clears throat> Even more so, it almost bankrupted Fox, okay? You read through the IMDb fun facts, this movie, along with two other movies that they would make in 68 and 69, because they said, no way, people still want musicals. No, we don't, actually, during this time. It took until 1973 when they re-released The Sound of Music to get them back on the box office okay anyway <laughs> you have four films this year that were game changers that were revolutionary and then you have dr doolittle which is just it's you both gave it two stars on letterbox but it is shit compared to what we have seen okay <laughs> I Brett knows. Brett knows. I like Rex Harrison from My Fair Lady. Okay, but reading the fun facts on this man and the production of Doctor Doolittle, evidently there was a lot of racism going on from him. There was a lot of anti-Semitic talk coming from him. Okay, F fuck Rex Harrison. Okay, I mean, just an asshole for a movie that, when you look at it. It stinks as bad as it looks because there's a lot of animals in this movie. Okay. <laughs> Last point here. This one best original song for Talk to the Animals. My clearest remembrance of this song is that when I used to go to the Bringling Brothers Circus, they used to sing this. And there it was like the most extravagant song you could think of. But even in this movie, it is so boring. Okay. Rex Harrison hated this song. It is not a good song. There's plenty of other good songs from this year, I'm assuming. Okay. Bare Necessities? I mean. Bare Necessities. There you go. There's one. Okay. Iconic. <clears throat> There's a film called Thoroughly Modern Millie. Its title song is fine. Good song, though. Anything from The Graduate, though technically not eligible this year, I mean, iconic. <laughs> Talk to the animals. I'll pass. Thank you. I, I'll eat the animals, but talking to the animals, I'm good. <laughs> Okay, we just lost the the vegetarian crowds. Anyway, that's my rant. I hated it. Go. Um, my two star review is probably generous. Um, because the more I sit and reflect on this, I'm like, God, it was bad. And I, I, I think, I don't know. I, I started the film 
for like the first, I don't know, 30 minutes or so. And I was like, huh, you know, like it, it's, it's average, you know, it, it's not good, but it's not like this terrible thing I've heard it is, but then it keeps going and it just, it, it literally gets worse as it goes along. I mean, it, it truly, it's not one of those things where it's like a consistently mediocre. It's like, it starts like painfully average and then just gets bad, bad, bad. Oh my God. What is this? Um, at first, you know, the other thing when I watched, it, I was like, these visual effects are horrendous. I immediately like thought, okay, well it's 1967, but you know what? 2001 came out the next year. I, and I'm not saying, I mean, 2001 has the best effects of all time. So maybe that's not fair, but I think they could have done a little better. But also I think you, they have, better. you have Mary Poppins too, a few years before. Great, mm-hmm. great example. There you go. There you go. Um, yeah, I, this film would have actually been better if the sea snail showed up and it was just animated. Like that actually would have been better, even though nothing else in the movie is animated. Um, the Yeah, the snail is like so bad. I mean, I, I laughed when it showed up. Legitimately, audibly laughed. Not in a good way. Um, the two-headed llama thing. That one was at least... Me. What's that? It was the push me, pull me. The, the push me, yeah. pull me. Um, it, it was weird and you know, that wasn't as bad, but it was still kind of like, Oh God. Um, was anybody else concerned he was going to, and I'm sorry, we already get the expletive thing slapped on us all the time. Was anybody concerned he was going to fuck the seal? <laughs> a little bit. He was kind bit. of romantic with it. Yes. And then he kisses her. And then I'm like, is he going to throw, not remembering this movie, is he going to throw her? He throws the fucking seal off a cliff. You know what's sad is the song he sings to the seal is probably the best song in the in the movie, uh, the which is not saying one. much. It's the most romantic one, which is a little concerning. Yeah, I I was reading like when the song won, there was just a collective oh from the audience. <laughs> so I don't know who voted for it. I don't know if votes were just split that much, but I don't. Yeah, nobody liked this song. Um. Sammy Davis Jr. performed it at the Oscars. So I, that's maybe the one thing it had going for it. I don't know. But yeah, you're right. Like nobody liked this song. Um, nobody liked this movie. This is like evidence when people say, oh, this campaigning thing, the Oscars used to be so great. And now they've just been ruined by campaigns. Horse shit. Campaigns have always been around. Fox, like you said, Christian, bought this movie a, a nomination and it's like the old guard just hanging on to their dear lives for something, yep. even though they yep. didn't like it either. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know if I added much of anything there except to repeat that it's it's really bad. It is not a fun musical in any way. It was designed for kids, and they kept saying, "Oh, well, kids will enjoy it." I can't see myself enjoying this when I was a kid. I don't. I'd like to talk to a kid from the '60s who actually maybe did enjoy this to get their perspective, but I doubt there were many. And yeah, it's just, it's awful. I think it would have been more effective if the animals talked back and that would have been kid-like because then the focus is taken off of the human characters and turned towards the animals. But, you know, him shaking his leg like a horse and us to believe he's communicating with the horse or whatever animal it is. Uh, this is 1967 Shakespeare in Love. That's how I see it. You know, this is the 
you you say you don't know who voted for it it's the it's the old guard it's the industry uh populace that were still around from the 40s and 50s who said hey we we want one of our people to win this not all this new bohemian stuff that's coming out that happened to be nominated alongside you know the type of movies we used to go to you know with the intermissions and the and the programs and the things like that and famous people that we know from other musicals and other movies so i think this was their attempt of holding on to the old ways of doing things and it failed terribly i mean all it did was put more attention towards the other um I don't know if you want to call it new movies, but the new way of doing movies. I mean, you look at this and the next thing you have is the new American directors after that. And they were all inspired by these movies minus Dr. Doolittle. So it, all it did was help usher in that next generation of directors. And some of them are people that we hold in the highest regard today. So, And it's so weird. And it's so weird because the next year, the best picture winner is something that the old guard would love with Oliver. And yet I love Oliver. And you also have throw in funny girl in the mix there, but you also have somebody in funny girl in Barbara Streisand, who's part of now this new generation. And her talent is so like off the charts. People want to obviously see this performance that they probably didn't get a chance to see when she did it on stage. And then you have something like Dr. Doolittle which is not the sound of music quality that Fox was wanting to go for here. Mm-hmm. And also in the same year, there's the movie Camelot, the adaptation of that musical that is also just like a miserable fail. So in 67, most musicals, I say most, most musicals did not work. Yeah, but I think and the com- com- comparing it to Oliver, I think the thing that worked there is that you still had a good movie. You yes. had something that was good around it. Doolittle seems like it was just thrown together in a sense. And they just went off of the opinion that people will come out because they want to see a musical. You you need to have, you know, the music and you need to have everything else around it to make it a good musical. You can't just say, we're just going to put something out there. How about this concept? And I, I think uh, just going back to the Pictures of the Revolution book again, it really does a good job at talking about the, you know, push-pull of <laughs> making that movie because you could tell the studio, was, it was almost egotistical the way they brought that movie out. And, you know, the results showed, not the Academy results, but just from the way the moviegoers responded to it. Yeah. What I was also, when I was watching it, I need to read that book that's somewhere upstairs. When I was watching this, (laughs) any scene that does not have Dr. Doolittle in it, I immediately do not care about. Like, there's the the first scene that has the woman just singing about things. I literally do not care. I'm not here for two and a half hours of not the titular character. And it's also kind of amazing that when you do Dr. Doolittle, the only successful version was the Eddie Murphy version, because obviously Mm -hmm. it's set in modern days. The animals do, in fact, talk and they're voiced by celebrities. And it's also a very good movie, in my opinion. But then you do this again with Robert Downey Jr. 
in the same kind of S way of this, minus the songs, but animals do talk. They're terribly CGI'd animals. And yet this story on every single level still doesn't work with it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised they went back to the well again for for that concept. It was like, oh God, please don't do that. Yeah. Don't do it again. Yeah, um, I, I really think what I gathered from the book is, you know, what I think they should have done is, is turn the cameras on Rex Harrison and Rachel Roberts, because that would have been a fascinating documentary to watch Rachel Roberts just be a drunk hooligan all the time because uh, she was just as bad as her husband. Uh, that would have been a better movie than than Dr. Doolittle. But this is what we get. Well, this did it. It actually did really well at the Academy Awards, unfortunately. So, Christian, do you want to go over that? <laughs> it won. T- I'm sorry if I'm coughing. I'm just getting over a sickness, friends. But I'm also notice I didn't cough through Bonnie and Clyde, but I'm coughing through this movie. <laughs> it won as as well as song talk to the animals. It won special effects, which I mean, okay. Choices. It was also nominated for picture, cinematography, art direction, sound film editing, original score, adapted or treated. Oh, no, original score and score adaptation or treatment. Okay. It is also interesting to look at the fact that the guy who wrote the songs here went on to write the Willy Wonka songs, and he wrote Goldfinger. Like, okay. Um, and also, it, it Boca Raton Retirement Village fan favorite, <laughs> runner-up, ninth place, 1967. So no AFI wow. list here, friends. That was a stretch. <laughs> I actually did look up, and it was not. This what this tells you everything. Out of four hundred movies nominated, it was only nominated for one hundred years, one hundred songs. So it did not make the one hundred shortlist. Wow. Yeah. And I will say to to the guy who wrote the songs, he. It was a troubled time for him as well. Rex Harrison and the studio were, were very demanding on, on what they wanted. I don't think he had much flexibility. So it, it makes sense that he went on to write songs that were actually, or wrote songs previously and afterwards that were actually really good. So, All right. Well, any other thoughts on that atrocity before our next film? It's on HBO Max. <laughs> If you're a person who wants as a completist, it's it's on HBO. Yeah. Or just like self-torture. True. All right. Well, our next film is one that I think we'll definitely have different opinions about than Doolittle. It is The Graduate, directed by Mike Nichols. As we mentioned before, his second feature film, though he had done a lot of theater work before this. Um, adapted from the novel, another big influential movie from this year. It is the story of Benjamin Braddock, who is played by newcomer Dustin Hoffman, and he has just graduated. He's got his bachelor's degree from a college in the East Coast, and he travels all the way across country back home to Pasadena, California, um, to live with his parents while he tries to figure out his life. And that becomes a very difficult task for him. Um, I, I think the tagline 
Christian Craig, if I get it wrong, but it's like, this is Benjamin. He's very concerned about his future. I believe it was on your graduation cap, that quote. Am I it right? It wasn't. It wasn't, oh. but it was an off idea, idea to put it on my graduation okay. cap. Yes. Okay. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. Um, but yeah, that that idea of a recent college graduate having no idea what to do with his life or where to find fulfillment is kind of the backbone of this character. It's not that he doesn't have prospects. Um, one of the most famous line of this film is simply plastics. You know, he has job offers from his father's friends to go work in plastics and likely have a very profitable career, but he can't figure out what he wants. Um, and things get complicated. This kind of mixture of emotions leads him to eventually ha start having an affair with Mrs. Robinson, um, who is now an iconic character. She's played by Anne Bancroft. And things become complicated when Ben eventually falls in love with Mrs. Robinson's daughter, Elaine, who is played by Catherine Ross. And so that itself provides the crux of the film and the complication, the conflict that arises. And behind that is kind of this clash, kind of like the Academy. It's this clash between the new youth and kind of countercultural ideas and the old guard represented by Ben's parents, his friend, or his parents, friends, Mrs. Robinson. And of course, a lot of um, scenarios come out because of that. So, um, so I have to say, all of these films, except for Dr. Doolittle, I had seen once before. Um, and The Graduate, when I first watched it, was probably the one that stuck out to me the most. And happy to report that I still love it completely. Um, there are a lot of things that have been brought up about this film that, you know, maybe it hasn't aged well. I mean, Benjamin Braddock at the time was kind of considered, like, by some to be uh, this hero and, like, this this great, like, character. He's still a great character, but he's also kind of an asshole, um, and I, I, I personally think it's still possible to love the movie despite that fact. You can see him as an asshole, but also someone that is worth following and find his story really interesting and also still connect with his concerns about what he's going to do with his life in this changing time, this changing era where he doesn't necessarily want to end up like his mother and father, even though they live very comfortably. Um, I really like that, that this Braddock character, I think that he hasn't been perceived quite as well over time. It's actually better because he's that much more complex. Um, but that being said, Mrs. Robinson is, is probably one of the most tragic characters that I can recall in a movie. Um, she, there are some, some problematic things about her as well on the way that she pursues mentioned in the beginning, but you know, this is a woman who is caught in a loveless marriage with the husband that she doesn't really care about and doesn't seem to have much care for him even though there's not, it's not fully explored, there is definitely a disconnect between her and Elaine. And I think it's really interesting to see her through that lens as well and see her as a really complicated character that has gone through a lot and is trying to find this way to get out of her funk as well. Uh, but both of them are brilliant. The film is so amazingly directed. It is such a, a in some ways, a simple, like, character-driven story but mike nichols does not shoot this the easy way there are so many shots in this movie that are are so difficult maybe not difficult to do but they're not the easy way around whether it's like looking through um the aquarium or you know the shot the iconic shot through you know mrs robinson's legs 
I, I love the way it's shot. I love the way that the characters interact. It's just a an awesomely directed film, also a greatly edited film. Um, you know, Bonnie and Clyde, fantastic editing. I, I think these two were both just right there as as some absolutely amazing editing that maybe took from other sources, but also brought out something really new. Um, at times rapid, but mostly just meaningful. The, all the cuts mean something. It, it goes from one thing to another really well. And so I love it. I, I think it's great. I like how it presents this idea of the counterculture and how you know the older generation or the old guards, some of them were very much opposed to that and at conflict with it. And the last shot of the movie is, is one of the best shots in movie history. Uh, it's absolutely incredible. Yes. I, is that where you're ending? Yes, that's where I'm ending. You ended just like the last shot of this movie. Um, <laughs> the Simpsons do two great versions of this. Um, one where Dustin Hoffman is actually Lisa's teacher and Mrs. Krabappel does the whole leg situation. So the line, Mrs. Krabappel, you're trying to seduce me. And then Grandpa Abe and his girlfriend at the time end the episode by sitting in the back of their retirement bus, just like contemplating what's next. But neither here nor there. Plenty of Golden Girls jokes, too, because of Blanche, <laughs> you know, being a Mrs. Robinson type figure. But the film, I love it. Um, I'm just going to flat out say right now, it's my favorite of this year. So, and I read the Mike Nichols book last year about the making mm -hmm. of this, a lot of great things from it, but I didn't watch it actually for this podcast, just because I've seen it so many times and I might've seen it at the beginning of this year. So I'm like, I, I, I love this movie, but there's so many, like you said, stylistic choices in this. My favorite <clears throat> is uh, there's a scene where Benjamin is jumping from, it's from the pool but then it cuts yeah. very quickly into yeah. Mrs. Robinson. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's laying on top of her. That's like, every time I Incredible. see that, I'm just like, that is such a, like, that's so good of a shot. Of it a shouldn't cut. work. No, it shouldn't it work. It works and so well, though. It so is. Well. It works so well. How he goes from pool to on top of Mrs. Robinson. And it's so flawless and everything. Mm -hmm. But like watching Dustin Hoffman in this, Benjamin is such... To me, he's I don't he, I don't like him as a person. I don't think he's a likable character, but clearly maybe he is. He just has a lot of shit he has to figure out because he could stop this at any point, And yet he keeps going back to it like nobody told him to keep going. Nobody told him to stop. He just keeps going with it. And there's moments where he's just sitting there laying in bed where I think after maybe the first time he's with Mrs. Robinson, it just it just phases away so much where he doesn't even care about that. He's just the sound of silence ha 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 <laughs> is within him right now. There's nothing. He's still trying to figure out who the hell he is. Um, so I think Dustin Hoffman is great in that sense. That that is an actor. And Anne Bancroft as well. Very terrific in this film. Um, what's my little story? Oh, Dustin Hoffman was going to be in the producers and then he got this and Mel Brooks was like, Oh, that's with my wife. Go do that instead. So <laughs> the rest is history, but I love the graduate. Um, and I honestly think, like I said, spoiler alert, it's my favorite of the year. So go figure. I don't yeah. know. I can't say I've, I connect with it. I'm the only thing I can connect with is like after graduation, what the hell are you going to do with your life? But that's it. Yes. Ain't going to go out and do like no affair with married person or whatever. So, 
<laughs> I, there's so many, like, I'm the same way. I've watched this movie so many times, and I just jumped at the opportunity to watch it again because I'm like, oh, wow, it's November. I haven't watched it this year. Okay, I'll throw it in again. And there's so many uh, stories that you hear, like, from books and trivia and, like, uh, the amount of people that were supposed to be in this movie who didn't make it from Robert Redford to Ava Gardner to, um, what's his name? Gene Hackman. He was going to play mm. Mr. Robinson, which yes. is really weird considering how close in age Dustin Hoffman and Bancroft and Gene Hackman all are. But then um, he got a chance to do Bonnie and Clyde instead. And the, the, one, the one story that I, I always think is really interesting is how this was supposed to be Mike Nichols' first feature film. And then Virginia Woolf just popped up and it was, he's a theater guy, it's easy to do, he knows it so well. You get to work with two greats in, you know, in Elizabeth and Mr. Burton, Sir Burton. And, you know, this became the second movie. And, you know, as film, film school geeks, we always uh, hear about like the match cut and people use like 2001 as like the match cut. I show people that scene that Christian was just talking about as like the perfect match cut scene. And there's a couple of them, you know, he starts in one room, he ends up in a totally different room. Little little camera tricks and nuances and excellent editing that, you know, you, you pick up something from the movie every time you watch it that's a little bit different. I love movies like that because yes. that means there was a great deal of care put into making it and it means that you're in the hands of really really uh good filmmakers or in the case of buck henry you got a great screenwriter and a great filmmaker in nichols so i could see why he won you know not only the academy but dga and bafta mm -hmm. and golden globes he he won them all for this movie and it shows it it's it's an excellent movie to me and there's love, still people that don't get it. I don't get that. But. I love Buck Henry's cameo in this, where it's like, are yes. you here for an affair, sir? He's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> that's, the weirdest, that's the weirdest thing is like this. I remember distinctly when I first saw this, and it was after AFI posted the 2007 list. Mm -hmm. So I was like on a mission to watch all of them. And it's like either I didn't like the movie or did like the movie. And I gravitated towards this one so much that I was what, like 12, 13 years old watching it. And I thought it was like a forbidden movie because it's an older lady and a young guy having sex and stuff. Although it's more like you don't even see the sex scenes. It's mm -hmm. mild for 67 and mild for 2007 when I first saw it. And then Walmart had the 40th anniversary DVD with the soundtrack in it. And I'm like, this is mine. I'm buying this. Yeah, uh, that's another thing to talk about. Um, how many movies could you think of before where they had contemporary music in it as a soundtrack versus just using a score? And, right. you know, there are certain scenes where Paul Simon is actually there playing guitar, like when the car is slowing down as he's getting closer and closer to the church. It's like the reason why it matches so well is because Paul Simon's watching the film and playing along. So it's like, he's slowing down, I'm slowing down. 
And I, you know, you look at modern movies and God help you if there's a score in the movie because everything is like, throw in a song here, throw in a song here. You know, here's a temp track that we just got the license for, so we're actually going to use it or take this temp track and make your version of it so it sounds just like, I don't know, 300 from years ago or whatever the case may be. And this is like one of the first ones that actually use contemporary music that way. Mm-hmm. And it works very well too. That's yeah, very well. It's it's like they're synonymous with each other. You hear uh, Simon and Gun- Garfunkel, and you hear, and you watch a graduate, and one reminds you of the other. Right, which is amazing because I, you know, Sound of Silence was it, its time had like come and gone the year before the mm-hmm. graduate came out. You know, it was already a popular hit. It was like on the on the wind down phase. And then Mike Nichols is like, I, I, this, this, it just fits perfectly in this movie. And now I, I think that's what a lot of people do tie it to is the graduate. Um, yep. it, it's certainly how I think of it. And I think that the needle drops, like where he's going through the tunnel in the car and like trying to find Elaine in the wedding and stop it. And, you know, it's, it just works perfectly because the whole time it's doing this kind of lead up with the do, 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 do. And it never like actually says the lyrics, but then he goes mm-hmm. to that tunnel. He emerges like, and here's to you. It is like, it's such a good needle drop that it gives me chills every time I think about it. And yeah, it, it's amazing to think that that was not something that movies did. And few movies have still done it as well, if any. So it's pretty remarkable. I, I'm a fifth grade teacher and I'm teaching poetry currently as we're listening to this. I gave my kids the sound of silence to analyze the song in terms of its rhyming scheme. And obviously I did not make them dig into what this song was saying or anything. I just wanted to listen to the rhyming scheme. But hey, influential in that because, mm-hmm. I mean, they're smart enough to pick up the rhyming scheme of it. So, But it was like the only song I could think of at the time where it was like, wait a second, going through styles of poetry and it's like okay yeah cool this works and i'm like i should show them a clip but then i was like wait a second fifth grade fifth grade fifth grade no no <laughs> maybe <laughs> opening credits right, opening credits that's about there you it go. Yep. yeah once he leaves the airport take it off take it off yep <laughs> isn't isn't uh doesn't jackie brown open the same way as this mm-hmm. with uh across 110th street yeah yeah yep. Yeah. A lot of, oh, you know, okay. B movie, the Seinfeld movie, <laughs> B movie, has a total parody of this in it. it. There's a scene with the B in a pool where his parents are like, What are you going to do now that you've graduated? And he's trying to figure out life. And I watched it the other day and I'm like, Are you kidding me? There's mm-hmm. this movie is so influential to a lot of different things. It's hilarious. And you you think about it in in respect to the time you had a bunch of kids who went off to college and then came home and, you know, had their parents saying, so what are you going to do now? And it was like, I don't know. Everything's been guided so far. I don't right. know what to do in my life. So it was the reason why teenagers and young adults were going back to see this movie two, three, four times in the theaters because they identified with it so well. It was like you're you're singing my song, you're telling my story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to think like, you know, D- Dustin Hoffman at the time that was seen as such an 
an awful casting choice by so many. He was not a big name. He wasn't conventionally attractive. They all wanted Robert Redford, as you mentioned. You can't do this movie without Dustin Hoffman looking back now. It, it's mm-hmm. You cannot recast that role. I Nobody else would do it better. And obviously Hoffman, he, we've kind of learned over time, he's not a great human either, but it was the beginning of you know what became a really remarkable acting career, obviously. Um, I think that Mike Nichols, what's so impressive about going from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf to this is that I just, I'm sure they're out there, but like it for me, I I struggle to think of other directors who might have had as much challenge of two films to start their career because you're going from Virginia Woolf, you've got Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, two of the biggest stars in Hollywood at the time, and you're gonna make them look 30 years older. And then you go in, and now you're doing this. You got Anne Bancroft, but otherwise you got a bunch of unknowns. You got this guy that nobody thinks is that attractive. Um, his co-star who nobody knows about yet in um, uh, Catherine Ross. And, you know, you're also making Anne Bancroft look 20, 30 years older than she actually looks. And so, you know, with directing and like choices for who you have as actors and how you direct those actors, it's a really challenging couple of movies to start your career. And it's just amazing that he knocked both completely out of the park. Yeah. If you have a good a chance, look back on some of those routines that Mike Nichols and Elaine May used to do. Mm-hmm. You'll find like some similarities to the comedy in The Graduate, like the cigarette kissing scene. That's all from a Nichols and May uh, routine. Yeah, and that's a good point, too. We haven't even talked much about the comedy in this movie, but it is legitimately funny. Uh, without being forced i i still laugh so hard at the scene where he brings elaine to the to the hotel where he would take her mom and they're all calling him different names that he's used that is so funny even to this day i like the scene where he just grabs mrs robinson's breast and she's just like casually like accepts it and his face and demeanor is just like so nonchalant it's just like yeah everyday thing here and she's just like all right what are you gonna do <laughs> And, and the then scene where like sound he would make. <laughs> the scene where she first like reveals herself to him and he's like, oh God. Oh God. Oh, God. <laughs> Robert Redford couldn't do that. I- I'm sorry, Robert yeah. Redford, great actor, but that would not go the same with Robert Redford. Just saying. You know why? Because pe- audiences would expect him to expect him to be like, okay, and then just like right there on the staircase. Yeah. Right. They would expect him to take her barefoot in the park. <laughs> I just watched that today. <laughs> so fun. It is. Did you all see, you, you saw Richard Dreyfus in this movie, correct? Yes. Uh, yes. Do you yeah. want me to call the cops? Yeah. His yeah. little itty bitty role. Yeah. I got scale for saying two lines. <laughs> Uh, well, this one, as we mentioned, it got just the one win for Best Director, um, which was a little more common up to that point, but does not happen much anymore. Um, and so, but did get six additional noms for Picture. Dustin Hoffman did get nominated for Actor. Anne Bancroft for Best Actress. Catherine Ross for Supporting Actress, Adapted Screenplay, and The Cinematography. Where's the editing nom? Um, choices. but. Yeah, no. Maybe it went to Dr. Doolittle. I don't know. 
<laughs> oh, geez. Uh, this was also on the AFI list, along with Bonnie and Clyde. It was a little higher. Is at number 17. This really didn't get an editing, but Dr. Doolittle didn't. That was a joke. It did it really. It did, yeah. Yep. And that movie is well, two you hours and too long to have any type of editing known. Yikes. Injustice. All right. Well, any other thoughts on The Graduate before we move on to our next one? It is on the Criterion Collection. And it needs a 4K upgrade. Yes. There's a great documentary on the Criterion edition as well from like 2007 where they were had a lot of people on talking about the movie. So, and its impact. Worth a watch. All right. Well, Christian, you've got our next one. Uh, fittingly so, I would say, um, based oh, on yeah. who's in it. Yeah, so, really. yes. Whenever you're ready. I got to get some names here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Our next film is one that at the time when it was made, people were thinking, hey, it's ahead of its time. And then a groundbreaking Supreme Court case came out and immediately the film became irrelevant in many ways. Maybe not so, but it still reached audiences, critics alike. And it is one of my favorite films, actually. And that is for one particular reason we all know. It is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, directed by Stanley Kramer, starring the legends Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, Sidney Poitier, and Catherine Houghton? Houghton. One of the two, who's actually Catherine Hepburn's actual niece. So, family dynamic here. But the film is about a couple played by Houghton and Sidney Poitier. And this is, this is his third movie in the year. So, we'll talk about... Two, we'll actually talk about all three of them three. at one point or another. So yeah, yeah. cool. Sidney Poitier, his year, I tell you what. Um, so it is about a couple. And if you know Sidney Poitier, he is a black man. And Catherine Houghton is a white woman. So this is an interracial couple. And they want to get married. So guess who's coming to dinner? Well, she's bringing home this man, who is also a doctor, to her family. Played by Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy as her parents. They're obviously shocked about it that their young daughter has made this decision to bring home not only an older man, but a black man as well in 1967. Um, much to the dismay of some of their friends slash co-workers and their housekeeper, Tilly. Um, just a lot of confusion of what the heck is going on. Again, the old guard of Tracy and Hepburn's idealistic ways versus something totally new. There's a thing, though, in here that I kind of honestly caught on with this is that though her name is uh, Joanna, Joanna sees this world as everything is going to be fine for us when we get married. He loves me. I love him. Even though we've known each other for maybe like a few weeks or so, we're going to get married. But Sydney's character on the very surface of it is like, well, hold up. If we don't get the blessing from your parents I can't marry you because I don't want to put you into this life of everybody will look at us, stare at us, talk about us, and everybody will just be confused about the whole thing. Okay. So in the end, and obviously it's been what, 50, 60 plus years almost since this movie came out. I don't want to give it away because it's a, it's an enjoyable film. It's a very happy film and a very almost sad film when you know about the history of it. Um, but Dr. John Prentice, that's Sydney's, his parents 
would technically be they be the titular guess who? Mm. They're part. I, of I, I would I would see him, him as part primarily. Yeah. yeah. Well, primarily. they they come to dinner, and things go from there. Of should this couple actually be together? Should we give our blessings to them? Et cetera, et cetera. Now, the sad part about this is this was uh, Spencer Tracy's last film. He was nominated for it. He didn't win. Catherine Hepburn ended up winning in what many kind of consider a consolation to him for passing away. And if you know anything about their history, Tracy and Hepburn were obviously professional working partners, but real partners in real life. Like there was a true love connection there. So seeing them still <clears throat> work their chemistry let's see their first movie was what like 42 so 30 almost 30 years as a partnership there in one way or another seeing it all come to this grand finale where spencer tracy just gives this really riveting performance that talks about what it's like to be with somebody for so long and you see the pain in Catherine's face knowing that she knows he's sick in real life, I, I mean, I'm obviously not sure if she knew that he was going to die shortly after making this film, um, but he does. And the scene at the very end where he's talking about this makes this all more heartbreaking. Um, and if you ever have a chance to read Catherine Hepburn's book, Me, uh, definitely take it, take a read of that because she writes a letter to him after he died. And it's just like, oh, it's so sad. But the rest of the film, I've always really liked it. Um, I said it was kind of outdated in that in 1967, Loving v. Virginia, which kind of said, well, not kind of said, it did say that you basically cannot discriminate against marriage of, I mean, like whatever creed, cause, religion, um, kind of broke open the doors for a couple like the couple in this to actually get married. And it was shortly after this movie was, let's see, it was still... Yeah, so it was kind of like after, before this movie took place, that it's like, okay, well, now they can actually do this without any discrimination. So, but I still think it's a very important movie. Stanley Kramer made a lot of important films too um, that really went above and beyond, especially like the Defiant ones, which is a lot of uh, racial issues. And again, Sidney Potty is in that movie. And of course, Judgment at Nuremberg. So, but I liked it. So. I've always been a fan of Gussie's Coming to Dinner. It's one of my favorites. And honestly, comfort movie, I think. Mm. And it's great, and they both loved it. Okay, moving on to the next movie. <laughs> um, well, this is the second time I've seen this as well. Um, and yeah, I it is interesting, because I've always considered, yeah, yeah, it's a bit dated today. I've only recently I learned how it was considered dated at the time. Um, and a lot of critics pointed that out. They're like, we don't really see this issue as an issue anymore, which is kind of disingenuous because even though it wasn't as much of a legal issue, it was very much still a social issue. Um, I, in the Mark Harris book, I was reading that like even, you know, 45% of Northern whites, not even Southern white people were against um, interracial marriage at the time. So I, I, I don't see it as something where like this movie didn't need to exist because it was all solved. I, you know, I, I don't see it that way, but there are ways in which it doesn't quite hold. Um, one of them being that I, I think the movie is primarily about um, Hepburn and Tracy's characters. Um, and now, now I think we get to reflect on that a, bit, a little bit differently because now get out has come out 
And, you know, Jordan Peele kind of took this story in a different way and focused on the actual black man at the center of the story and did really interesting things with it. Excuse me, how dare you bypass the 2005 remake of this film, Guess Who, starring Bernie Mac and Ashton Rest in peace. Rest rest in peace, Bernie Mac. Uh, Sorry. Sorry. Sorry to go over that one. I'm sure. I'm sure it's a masterpiece. Um, But but yeah, but that said, it is so hard to watch this movie and not get swept up in the Hepburn Tracy partnership. And I, and you know, part of it is like, you know, maybe that's a bit of a flaw of the movie that like to me and I watch it now when I think about it, I, you know, the whole interracial marriage dynamic, it's, it's, it's not necessarily the first thing I think of that sticks out for this movie. It is Hepburn and Tracy that said, their moments are so powerful and effective. The scene where Tracy is giving his big monologue and you see Catherine Hepburn looking on and her eyes are tearing up. It, it's still so powerful because you know that Tracy is, is probably talking about her and she knows that. And that, you know, I don't know. Some people don't like to bring in the off screen stuff into movies, but I like when things like that reflect life and knowing that he did pass away 10 days after this and that their relationship was like the biggest open secret in Hollywood and that she took care of him in those final days. It's really, really powerful. And I, the idea that this was like a, a consolation win for Hepburn, I think is totally ludicrous. I think she's excellent in this movie. Um, I, I think she's the best performance in the movie personally, and I have no issue with her Oscar win. At least I haven't seen all of them, but I, is it my favorite Hepburn movie? No, that's a, that's an unreal expectation though. I mean, she's Catherine Hepburn. Um, I think she's brilliant. I think Spencer Tracy is brilliant. I don't think Poitier is giving much to do. Um, He does well with what he's given, but I do agree with the common criticism of this movie in that his character is just too perfect um he is what at the time it was it was the common thing if you're going to have an african-american character in the film and they're going to be the hero they have to be absolutely perfect they cannot have a single blemish and they can't be sexualized in any way and that definitely continues here i do think it's an issue not only that but also i don't see why he would want to be with joanna um because she is is honestly kind of annoying did i not text you that when i watched it last week yeah, like um, he is so her expectations are so high and she's so annoying. Yes. So I I do agree with that criticism of the film, and I think it's very apparent in it. Um, but like you said, Christian, it is a, I think it's a really easy film to enjoy. I think despite some issues with the screenplay, there is some good dialogue there. I find it really interesting that the most open-minded character in the movie is probably the Catholic priest. Um that seems <laughs> kind of interesting. Um, and I also want to point out, um, Bea Richards, who yes. is not in much of the movie, but for me, it's her and Hepburn probably at the top and, and Tracy's up there too. Tracy's brilliant, but Bea Richards comes in and she kind of delivers a really quiet powerhouse here. And mm-hmm. I don't think she really gets much credit for that. Cause I think she's remarkable, but she doesn't get credit in either movie with any, uh, her yes. and Portier. Exactly. So that's my thought. It's a movie that does have its issues. That said, I I don't think it was completely outdated at the time it was released. And I, I do. It's definitely a, an enjoyable movie for sure. I enjoy quite a bit. There is one more aspect I want to talk about um, before KB. 
but there's the the scene of like the Tilly's. I don't know what, what would she be. She like almost assistant, the younger girl, who then she's like the modern music with the delivery guy. That whole thing, it's like it starts somewhere. The film kind of wants to take it somewhere, and then it forgets about them altogether. But it's yeah. almost like saying, "Look, the young people. The young people are free and loving." And it's like, okay, that that why even put that in there if it doesn't go anywhere? You know, right. I don't know. Just a little itty bitty. I think it's just an attempt to. I don't know. Some movies kind of capsulize the timing with scenes like that the time in which it happened so this is a modern 67 movie listen to the music look at the attitudes between these two characters and it's it's nothing like you know love at first sight or they're going somewhere it's just like that establishment maybe down the road after the movie credits have rolled something happens but we get this snapshot of their life right here at the beginning at the source um i don't know but this is this is a movie I never took seriously because I think for such uh, a topic with such gravity, it's a very jovial movie. And I, I think a lot of people take it with that amount of seriousness. And you're right, Tracy and Hepburn is the movie despite not necessarily being the main stars. And I hate this expression, but Portier is safe. Mm. That's the expression that you're looking for. He's safe. So it's like, get him in there to play this perfect character, even though we know that that is not a reality. But um, I don't remember where I read it or saw it, but after Tracy did that speech, that was done on his rap day. And then everybody was like applauding and you know, going crazy because, you know, that's it. This is Mr. Tracy's last day on the set, you know, round of applause, blah, blah, blah. And there are certain moments in movie history that I would love to have been a fly on that wall. That is definitely one of them. Just to see the emotion, especially from coming from Hepburn and anyone else who might have been familiar with the situation, just to to see that rap day, that would have been everything. But like you both said, this movie, um, it it has significance because of the topic, but I don't know. I think it doesn't take itself too seriously, so you as a watcher can never take the situation in it too seriously because it is, in a way, supposed to be a romantic comedy. It's not supposed to be a drama, even though it's pretty light on the comedic aspect. You know, nobody's falling over furniture or anything like that, so... I don't know. I I I like it. I I watch it a ton of times. But it she's she's so flaky. She, it's like <laughs> very very lighty in her ways, and it's like here you are a serious doctor, you know, getting into a relationship where you know there will be in the sixties, especially there will be conflict, and you have this flake of a a significant other to do it with i don't i don't know he, he must not be the logical type of person but he he's apparently a really good doctor just yeah. like watching her there's a scene where she's ironing and Catherine is like oh don't don't burn your shit darling and everything like that and it's like can you just shut up for five seconds 
Like, we get it. You love him. But at the same time, girl, I mean. It seemed like that teeny bopper, innocent kind of love, like where everything is like super far-fetched and, you know, Mm -hmm. you're not ready for the realities of the world. Also, it's kind of, in watching it this time, again, still love this movie, where there's so much pressure put on Tracy and Hepburn's characters to, okay, either you accept this marriage, they get married, your daughter's happy, or you don't. And you lose your daughter because she's going to do it anyway and be unhappy because she now lost her parents. It's like, yeah. Oh, oh and you have a time now, limit. The fact now you have a day, you have a day to do this. Okay. You got a deadline. It's like, oh my God. I've never put two and two together with that. It's like, wait a second. That's like, a lot. Oh my God. This is Don't a, let this... one of my kids come through the door telling me some nonsense like that. Right. Like, <laughs> no, I ain't the one. I am not the one. Go somewhere else and come back to me with a better story because I'm not taking that one. Uh-uh. And you would think <laughs> yeah. you would think like the priest would have like a big old moment. Like you would if this was not, I don't think if this was Tracy and Hepburn there were two other people, then the priest would probably have like the come to Jesus moment. Oh, yeah. Hey, here's yeah. the whole thing. But then instead you have these two. So it's obviously, but like you said, Brett, Monsignor Ryan, he's just sitting there like, okay, so, you know, thank you for bringing me here, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> When's the food ready? <laughs> Are we having wine with dinner? <laughs> God. Also, there is in fact a Golden Girls episode, which you could relate back to this it's in the reverse where it's dorothy's son marrying an older black woman and things go from there and everything yeah i mean it's a it's a decent episode it has its own problems and flaws and everything but there's my golden girls my big golden girls reference there you go well christian do you want to go over how this one did at the oscars and all that stuff yes so it won excuse me it won actress for hepburn and original screenplay and it was nominated for picture director for stanley kramer spencer tracy's posthumous oscar nomination cecil calloway as the monsignor was nominated for supporting actor yeah bia richards was nominated for supporting actress so um three times already that uh film has been nominated for all the acting categories art direction which the house is beautiful okay (sighs) It's in my personal (laughs) nomination. I want this house, okay? Film editing and score adaptation or treatment. And it was in 1998 on the AFI list at number 99. Yeah. Didn't make the 2007. I think it's telling it, and this is to your point, as you were talking about earlier, KB, like I just, the film was certainly revolutionary in, in a way at the time, but I, it's not one that's I don't think is has stood the test of time like three others that we're talking about. And even in the way it looks to I mean, it it, it looks like a, a pre late 60s, you know, early 70s movie, very highly lit, the, the pristine look to it all, as opposed to kind of the more gritty, you know, kind of look that some of the others have. But I would still, not have, I would not have a problem double featuring this with Get Out. I mean, oh, yeah, I think that'd be good. Yeah, obviously, similar plot situation, execution, very different. Yes, I can see it. I can see it. 
All right. Well, any further thoughts on guess who's coming to dinner before our best picture winner? <coughs> How would it be different if they remade it today? <laughs> uh, aside from Get Out, um, interesting. I, I, I think they would take a different approach besides just the interracial relationship yeah i i don't think they could get away with just that today right rightfully so you know i was thinking about this and having like maybe like an lgbtq kind of relationship Mm -hmm. going on that's what i was Mm -hmm. thinking that would be the most but then there would be so much criticism of like okay it's pandering it's i don't know people are doing it wrong that's when you would have to get a director Happiest kind season kind of did that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it got criticism for it. Yeah. And maybe like it, you know, have a, a non-binary character or something like that, that I think today would still be, it's obviously not very common, but I don't know in, in every way as I think about it. They, yeah, they could definitely run into issues. So. It'd be interesting. It would. Great question. Wow. All right. So. Our best picture winner of all the revolutionary movies of this year was, of course, In the Heat of the Night. So this was directed by Norman Jewison. Um, we actually talked about him recently with Moonstruck. So um, this is what he was doing 20 years before. Um, this one also stars Sidney Poitier as a black cop from police detective from Philadelphia who finds himself in Sparta, Mississippi. Not at all on the job. Um, he is just passing through on his way back home to Philadelphia, but while waiting on a train, he gets arrested and he's brought in and we come to find that a man, Philip Colbert, um, has been murdered and Colbert was an industrialist who was looking to build a new factory in Sparta, which a lot of people had conflicting views about. It is bringing in jobs, but is it going to push out the other wealthy men in town and reduce their income there are some issues there so on one hand you've got this murder mystery um the cops who are led by sheriff gillespie who's played by rod steiger have to find out who committed this murder you know on the other hand um virgil tibbs poitiers character is informed by his boss back in philadelphia that he should stay and help gillespie solve this case and so now once again, we've got this kind of tension between the two because this is Sparta, Mississippi in the 1960s. Gillespie is a racist cop and he has to work with this black detective who's coming to town to try to solve this case. And so unlike Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, where I think the racial aspects kind of took a backseat to, to Tracy and Hepburn, I think in this case, they're much more at the forefront. Um, when I think about this movie... I don't think that much about the murder mystery. In fact, this is my second time watching it in between. Not going to lie. I kind of forgot who actually committed the murder. Um, so it was kind of a surprise in that way. What really sticks with me is the relationship between Tibbs and Gillespie. Um, the film is significant for a lot of ways, you know, for Portier, it was one of those that like, even though his character is still presented in a very like, uh, you know, very accomplished way. He is obviously an excellent detective. He is by far the smartest man in any room he walks into. 
Um, he presents himself as kind of like a higher class than the, the local citizens of Sparta. He has an edge to him. Um, the, the biggest scene in this movie is the slap. And I think, you know, obviously today it doesn't have the same impact as it did in 1967. But as a viewer, if you can place yourself in that time and think about seeing that in a loaded theater, I can just imagine how amazing that would have been. Um, I think Portier is excellent in this movie. I, you know, Rod Steiger was one who won the Oscar for this, and I think he is really good in this movie. Um, but I definitely prefer Portier. I, I think he, this is a character that he takes on in, in sometimes a very subtle fashion, but you really kind of get to be with him and see, even when he's not saying anything, you kind of get, you know, inklings of what he's feeling and what he's thinking. And honestly, he hates these people at times, you know, a lot of the time. And that's really cool to see, especially after watching Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Um, and so once again, like like all movies from 1967, I'm not saying this film is aged perfectly, but it's still one of those movies that I watched and I'm not only so entertained by, but just really cool to think about as like that this was something that came out at that time. It was new. It's really exciting. And it was a new challenge for who was one of the greatest actors of all time, particularly in that period. So excellent movie. Um, we'll get into whether it was my pick to win best picture or not, but even if not, I have no problem with that win because I think it's really good. Really excellent. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I like this movie. I don't know if I particularly love it or anything, but I do like it. And it is one that is very simple watch in that I like now in the perspective of 2022, I understand where it's coming from. I understand the themes behind it, the importance of it and everything. Um, but I just don't love it and I don't know why, but like I could watch it at any time. I didn't rewatch it for this one because when Sydney passed away, I ended up watching it in honor of him. Um, but he is fantastic in this and like the chemistry that him and Steiger both have in this, even though it is clearly a hate relationship, a like a respect hate relationship they work so well together in this um and the slap part where the guy is like well what are you gonna do about it and he's just like i don't know it's like hey just slap the guy i don't care i mean i'm the cop if i would have done something i would have done something in the moment and yet i'm not gonna do anything all right um but it is a really good mystery too uh and there's that one scene too that sydney is fighting off all the white men which is like that wrought iron and it's like the scariest moment ever because you're like, oh, shit, what's going to happen to him? But then as you think about it, it does run into the issue where Sydney is a very proper black man in the South during a time when still civil rights, though the civil rights bill is getting there. Um, and we're coming off of the next year, Martin Luther King Jr. being assassinated. He's still a perfect man. So it's not a totally realistic portrayal of what he could be. Um, but it is a uh, particularly interesting putting him in a situation of a world that is obviously against him so much. So the production wasn't even made in the South. It was made in Illinois because that's where mm -hmm. Sidney Poitier could stay in a hotel without being discriminated against, without being taken in the middle of the night and killed as still some people were in the sixties. So there's the importance and significance of that. 
Now talk to me about the fact he wasn't nominated for this movie because mm-hmm. of anything, they should be t- double nominating Steiger and Poitier if they were going to do anything mm-hmm. with that. Yep. Because they're both obviously co-leads in this. And if you really want to go for it, you have Sidney Poitier right there waiting for a nomination for this. Of all movies he could get nominated for. So that's like the biggest mystery of why he wasn't nominated. I mean, even throw him in supporting. Cool. At least he's nominated for this. Right. Yeah. I, um, I could see we, we've seen so many examples, especially the two of you, as you go through these various years of what happens, the good and the bad of splitting the votes between two nominees in the same category. But I totally agree. Um, of his three movies this year, this is the grittiest and also his best performance. Um, I dare say from the majority of his filmography that I've seen, this is probably one of his most grittiest roles because you, you mentioned that, you know, a racist cop, but there is bias from both ends. You know, mm-hmm. he he does, the character does have a, an esteem to him where he sees himself as better than these local hicks. So there's bias there towards them from him, but also you have the racial element here. Besides the slap, that's, that's a given. This movie is great on so many different levels and it took so many different risks. And the things that we don't talk about um, off the top, I mean, it's easy to talk about the acting, but, we don't talk about the cinematography, the way it um, makes, you know, like you said, Illinois look like the South or the score or the main song with Ray Charles. You know, there's mm-hmm. so many aspects to it that, you know, ne- you need to go back and watch this time and time again because you pick up on little things. And I, I, I just love it. I, I wouldn't say it's my favorite but I would say that it's a well-deserved win as far as the best picture. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the score in the song too, because that Quincy Jones score is awesome. I, I, I think it's my favorite of the movies I watched this year so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously the, the Ray Charles song is, is great intro, neither of which were nominated. Um, and of course, I don't know if eligibility factors into that. I don't think it would have. But in addition to the Poitier nom, missed opportunity there from the Oscars. It was an original song. It was written for the movie. So yeah, right. I that's what I thought. I mean, I assume so. It has the same title, but mm-hmm. yeah, Miss, there's missed also, opportunity. There's also the t- a TV show after this, made in the eighties, which is just and, so interesting to me. And the sequels. And, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, there's a sequel to this, isn't there? There's two. If you, um, yeah, if you get the the latest Kino Lorber 4K of it, you get the um, In the Heat of the Night on 4K, and then on Blu-ray you get They Call Me Mr. Tibbs and The Organization, which are the two sequels with uh, Virgil Tibbs in it. I didn't realize that there was a third one. Right, I knew the second one, but I didn't know there was another one. Yeah, iconic line in the movie too. Yes, oh, absolutely. Goodness. Which would then go on to be an iconic line of the Lion King. <laughs> Amazing. 
I find it, I'm looking at the TV show that was made and um, the part of Gillespie is played by Carol O'Connor, who was, of course, like Archie Bunker. Mm-hmm. And that's so perfectly because Gillespie and Archie Bunker are the same person. Yes. I mean, and with yep. the casting there altogether. Which is funny because my first encounter with this movie was the show. So when I finally oh. saw the movie, I'm like, why does Carol O'Connor look so different in this movie? Come to find out it wasn't Carol O'Connor, it was Rod Steiger. So, yeah. Interesting. I had no idea that there's a third movie of this. And now I'm interested. Yeah, I didn't either. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it has little to do with this, but you, you still have the character of Tibbs being carried over from the first uh, to the two subsequent nice. movies. So, good pickup, too. Good, good uh, 4K transfer. Nice. Yeah, and this is another one. Speaking of that, that's also in the Criterion Collection. I think it just mm-hmm. entered like what three years ago or something. So yeah, it's not long ago. Fairly recent. Um, yeah, really good. Yeah, and I love the way it's shot. It it's so dark in some ways, but yeah, I the central relationship is what sticks out. I I like the way it kind of ends too because with a lot of movies, you know, I I would expect something like this where they become best of friends. And it's really like flowery and pristine. No, no. Like I, I, I don't think these characters like each other at the end. I think they have a respect for each other. Um, and I like that it ends that way. It just feels so much more real and so much more in tune with how you would expect that story to go. Like they're, um, not gonna send, they're not going to send Christmas cards to each other every year. No, right. no, absolutely. Yearly no. update letters. <laughs> None of that. <laughs> I, I think, if anything, the movie does a great job of establishing the respect that they gain for each other throughout the um, the plot. But at the same time, at the end, you know, you do you, I'm doing me over here. So right. <laughs> that's where we leave it. I'm I'm on this train. <laughs> well, I haven't seen the sequel. So... <laughs> right. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I haven't seen the sequels, but I wouldn't imagine Virgil Tibbs stepping foot in Sparta again. Like he's gonna find a train around next time, you know. <laughs> he yeah. he doesn't want to come back to this place. He's not going so, back to Sparta. No. Uh, but this one was, as we mentioned earlier, it was the biggest winner of the night, not just with best picture, but in overall wins. It won five. Um, Rod Steiger also won best actor. It won best adapted screenplay, best sound, and best film editing. Um, and this was. The win was a pretty big deal for Steiger, not just because I, some felt he was overdue, but he ha- talked about how like he was only like 43 when he made this, but he looks like he's about 55 or something. And he was like, I need this Oscar win to like keep me relevant, um, which is interesting. But it also got nominated for Best Director for Jewison and for Sound Effects. And in 2007, it was on the most recent AFI list at number 75. Not saying AFI is the end all be all by any means, but to have three films from your lineup show up on that list in the most recent edition is is pretty pretty cool. So I'm looking at um <clears throat> Rod Steiger's filmography after this and uh Okay. There. I mean I, I, I don't recognize most of these except Amateurville Horror. Yeah, seventy nine, yeah. right? What? 
uh, Amityville Horror in 79. 79, yep. Yeah, that was, yeah. A, that was the only other thing I'd seen him in after that. Yeah. He was talking about how he, he was the same age as like Paul Newman and Marlon Brando. Mars Attacks. He's in Mars Attacks. <laughs> ah, yes, yes, yes. How did I think about it? Yeah. Huh. Also, um, I don't think you'll ever get that combination of a great director in Jewison and a great DP in um, in uh, what's his name? Axel Wexler. Axel Wexler. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then a film editor in Hal Ashby. Hal Ashby. Yeah. Oh so, my God! I forgot he did this editing, didn't he? Yeah. That, and then he went on to do his own movies. Yeah. So a lot of people don't know that he was a film editor before he started directing and writing and so forth. So, yeah, that's still a tragic loss that we uh, had on a very short-lived career. But I, oh, I think yeah. if we got those three together again, they'd put out some pretty mm-hmm. good content. Yeah. That oh, was nothing I discovered. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say Norman Jewison's 96. I didn't even realize this. Still with us. Yep. I was reading, and I know that directors oftentimes do have, you know, great relationships with their editors, but I was reading, that was one of the things that was kind of cool to discover too, is that Hal Ashby was kind of like one of Norman Jewison's biggest like friends during throughout this thing. They were like two great partners throughout the whole thing. So it's not surprising that Hal Ashby had a directorial eye as well. All right. Well, that is our best picture winner. Are we ready to go on and rank these five movies? Yes. All right. So I'll go first on this one. Uh, my number five, of course, is Dr. Doolittle. Moving all the way up. Number four is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Number three is In the Heat of the Night. Number two is Bonnie and Clyde. And number one is The Graduate. Not much distance between those top three, to be honest. KB, what do you got? Uh, at five, I have Doolittle, of course. At four, I have Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. At three, and you're going to have to correct me if I get these uh, next two switch around. But I have, um, at three, I have Bonnie and Clyde. At two, I have The Graduate and just because I thought the merit deserved it at one I have in the heat of the night. I think the Academy got it right that year for best picture. As I said before, graduate is my favorite, but I do think in the heat of the night was more deserving. That is fair. Christian, how about you? At number five, I have the graduate. Um, at number four, uh, four doesn't matter. Three doesn't matter. Two doesn't matter. My number one is Dr. Doolittle. Get out of here. No. Not even this. It's time, bizarre no. world. <laughs> I have a number five do little because it does little for do little. At number four, I have guess who's coming to dinner. Although these top four are literally like they're great to me. Okay. At number three, in the heat of the night, two Bonnie and Clyde, and already I said it earlier. The Graduate is my number one. But I will have to say I think the Academy did get it right. Um, for such an important film and that it tackles with such a serious subject with two people who are at odds and ends with each other. 
in a world that is pitting each other, pitting them against one another, but they have to come together. They don't have a choice. Great film. Although The Graduate is my favorite. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, our overall ranking that Toby always does for us, we did have a tie here along the way. So um, at number four is Dr. Doolittle. Shocker. Number three, guess who's coming to dinner? Number two uh, was a tie between Bonnie and Clyde and in the heat of the night. And number one, according to Christian, is Dr. Doolittle again. So, you know, I don't know how that works, but no, uh, we have the graduate. But I think. The, the way I see it is that, you know, to me, there are three films that could have won Best Picture here and a fourth that I would have been still, you know, OK with. It's a good film, but really three graduate in the night um, and Bonnie and Clyde that would be looked upon very highly today, regardless. So um, can definitely. Yeah, definitely can't say the Academy got it wrong with Best Picture this year. All right. Well, there you have it. So obviously some great films that we went over there. We have some more, hopefully great films uh, to go over next time as well. So be sure to tune into that one. We have six more movies we're going to talk about. As always, we're going to do some honorable mentions and our personal awards. See what really was um, among the top films of 1967 overall. Be sure to tune in then. Um, as always, thank you for reviewing rating subscribing on apple itunes wherever you listen continue to do that if you can thanks to joshua arnoldi for doing our theme music and kb thanks for joining us once again um looking forward to the next time as well any final thoughts from you anything you want to plug because i know you've had some stuff going on lately oh me uh yeah i've been busy building this youtube channel that I'm still so thankful for you guys being on uh, on one of the first episodes. So uh, KB Loves Movies, just do a YouTube search or Instagram search and find me there. Uh, basically, I do film reviews, out of the theater stuff, talk about Blu-rays and 4Ks, uh, physical media collecting. But the main thing I do are these lovely, lovely conversations with people who love movies. So it's a part of the name. It's pretty much the game so kb loves movies check it out absolutely yes check that out great stuff christian anything else from you um i'm trying to write again so you can find me on letterbox and trying to write again i got a review published last week for the movie till which was incredible so despite me being a teacher and busy, I'm trying to get to a few screeners here and there and do my thing. But I am also teaching my kids about movies in a weird way, as in every day at the end of the day, we watch a Mickey Mouse and Friends old short from the 30s, 40s and 50s for them to get ready for their bus to be called. And it keeps them quiet and it also keeps them laughing and they're like super intrigued by it. So look at that, friends. The magic of the movies. <laughs> Love it. Yes. All right. Well, thanks as always for listening and be sure to tune in next time. See you.